Hello and welcome to The Heart of It, the podcast that gets to the heart of what we do and why we do it. I'm your host, writer and author Kate Sevilla, and each week I'll be taking a closer look at the working lives of passionate and creative people. This week, our guest is writer, podcaster, and relationships expert, Natalie Liu. Through her website, Baggage Reclaim, Natalie helps her community eliminate emotional baggage clutter and reassess their relationships with others, as well as the relationship they have with themselves. In this episode, I talk with Natalie about being what she calls a recovering people pleaser and how she's forged a career that fits with her lifestyle and energy levels. We also discuss battling perfectionism and how she stayed motivated as a self-employed person for all these years. Plus, of course, we talk about what's ultimately at the heart of her work. Welcome, Natalie Liu, to the Heart of It podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Kate, for having me. You in particular are so interesting because I don't think that you're someone who can really easily and tidily be kind of um, summed up with a uh, tidy job <laughs> title. So how do you kind of best describe what it is that you do? Well, after all these years, as you have, you know me so well, Kate, but I still, when people say, well, what do you do? I, I find, depending on the audience, like of who I'm around, sometimes it's just easier to go writer yeah. know, or author or speaker because they get that. Yes. Like back, if, I, if I said, and it definitely doesn't encompass everything that I do, but when I used to say blogger back in the day, and I remember you and I would laugh about this, if you said blogger, they would be like, oh, so like, do you write a diary online? And, and, and is this conversation <laughs> going to be put on there? You know, type of thing. So I stopped. Yes, I'm recording this. <laughs> yeah. It's like I stopped saying that because I yeah. realized that it was it was too much of a minefield for that. Um, I don't have a set title. I say, you know, like what Marie Kondo does for all the stuff in your home. I do that for all of like your emotional baggage and those habits that you basically sort of want to kick into touch. Oh, I like and, that. <laughs> you know, it's like that sort of the, the unpacking, the decluttering. Does the this spark joy? Does this person spark joy? No, <laughs> yeah. get rid of them. None, none of that spark joy malarkey, but it's <laughs> like we're all carrying around emotional baggage. And so that's what I help people to to figure out. And I do that through Yes, the speaking, the writing, the podcasting. Sometimes, you know, I, I lean into artistry as such now. So a bit of making, drawing, painting as well. So whatever way that I can convey to people, hey, this is how to kind of get to know yourself a bit more. This is how to deal with that thing. I will find the means to, to do that. Yes. Um, tell us a bit about your sort of career evolution, the days before Baggage Reclaim, um, and what were sort of the major things that happened to help get to to where you are now? Before sort of going off and doing Baggage Reclaim full time as such, I worked in, in, in media sales and I worked on Computer Active, which at the time was the biggest IT magazine uh, not just in the country, I think it was in Europe. While I was there, so I, I started working in 2003 and then it was 2004, about a year into working there that I started a blog. Okay. And I was doing that on the quiet at work, but a few people knew about it. That was my personal blog that I had back then. And so when it came out, 
you know, I, I think you know about this, but, you know, for a good couple of years of blogging, people thought that I was white. Because oh, interesting. Of, I think because of how I, I obviously there was no I wasn't posting a picture, no. maybe because of how I phrased things. They probably thought I was fair fair skinned with like red hair sure. from Ireland and sure. didn't make did people not they forgot register. that other pe- that Irish people could look different ways and people from Ireland yeah. could look differently oh sure <laughs> yeah and, and on my personal blog I wrote about you know living in London I, I, it was called tired of men and other things that drive a 20 something around the twist so I moaned about the tube you know smelly people on the tube and dates and my frustrations at work because I worked for a very uh, Michael Scott slash David Brent type of manager (laughs) and times a thousand and so I I would write this blog and yeah it was all kind of all quiet and then I was contacted by the I think it was the Daily Express and I honestly didn't think anybody read that because I know I didn't and so (laughs) they said oh we'd like to um we're doing a feature on, on blogging because obviously this is 2005, I think it was. It's like, oh, psh, oh, that's fine. Yeah, I'll talk to these people. Nobody will know about it. Walked into the office uh, the day it came out, 9 a.m. The whole office knew. Like it had been oh, up to the boardroom. Shit. It was it was talked about <laughs> like in, in, in some big tech companies. Did you hear about the girl that's working at VNU that's like had a secret blog? And yeah, like clients knew about it. It was like oh big... God. IT brands like it was very very funny like the whole thing what did they say to you well I I think that they were just really they they had a good look through it and they realized that I wasn't doing I mean to be fair like calling my boss David Brent times a thousand (laughs) they couldn't disagree (laughs) they were like this is very accurate it's fine yeah so um that I didn't get I didn't get into trouble for it but it meant that I suppose I had to be careful because I suddenly, I already had quite an audience. You know, this is back in the day, you could start a blog and you'd get an audience relatively quickly. Yeah. I had, a, I was like 10,000 readers a month, I think, back oh, then wow. or something like that. Yeah, that's yeah. good. Everybody was reading my that's, blog. <laughs> what a weird, day. that's so like early noughties as well. The idea that now, what, 15 years later, like your boss will follow you on Instagram um, or your mother-in-law does or everyone just kind of, the, the kind of dynamic of it is just so much different to what blogging and blogging is much more personal than Instagram. They're very different things and <laughs> which is part of what made it so good as well. But what an interesting dynamic to have at work and how much how long did you kind of last there uh, with everyone kind of knowing about your blog? It was a good couple of years and I'd started Bambino Goodies about a month before I had my first daughter and that was like a kid's lifestyle blog even though I didn't call it that then it was just a place for me to share things that I was purchasing. Yeah. And while I was on maternity leave it just amassed it started to amass readers because it really kind of struck a chord with people like yeah. somewhere that was sharing cool stuff for kids there wasn't really anything There's like a new that around thing at the then, time. Yeah. I was given a promotion while I was on maternity leave, which is unusual. Yeah. But it required me to come back to work like, I think it was something like the 4th of January. My eldest was eight months old at the time. Okay. So I went back in on January 4th and I discovered that I had no desk, no phone, no laptop. Uh, Like it was just so disorganized. I was going to my manager and he was saying, oh, I don't know what your job is. You need to go to the director. So I go to the director. No, he does know what your job is. Go back and talk to your manager. Like back oh and forth we were going. And it's like, 
this feels very, very weird and disrespectful. Then I went and sat down with HR and I was like, I'm not putting up with this. You guys figure out what it is that you're doing. And in the meantime, I'm going back on maternity leave. And I walked out of there. I contacted a, a, a co-worker who was working somewhere else at a creative management consultancy. They offered me some freelance work. I registered as self-employed and decided I was going to have a go at running baggage reclaim and Bambino goodies full time. Good for you. Moments like that, I think it's like when people are made redundant uh, or fired or pushed out, it, I don't want to say it always ends up being a positive, but in a weird way, if they had been like, here, Natalie, here is your new job description. I'm really excited for you to get started. Uh, Let's get to work. That probably would have completely, maybe, I mean, I, I love playing the whole like sliding doors game, but that probably would have altered or delayed your kind of full uh, evolution into into going freelance and working for yourself. Yeah, actually, I 100% agree with you because a few, like a couple of months before I became pregnant, uh, it was a surprise pregnancy. I had been offered a job at another media company, which would have, it was actually a freelance role. So it's like, oh, I get to go self-employed. And no word of a lie, I gave him my notice and the guy ghosted me. <laughs> <laughs> That seems like the kind of thing you would ghost. <laughs> I could not believe it. I was like, oh, my God, like I've just given my notice in and this guy's ghosted me. And so they, of course, had when I gave my notice in, they they, they were fighting to to hold on to me. Mm. So I leveraged it into more money. <laughs> Good. Good. <laughs> You're like, it was just a tactic. <laughs> Yeah, good. And of course, they never knew that the guy ghosted me. But the funny <laughs> thing was, is that when I found out I was pregnant, like literally two, three months later, I was like, oh, yeah, okay, this is why that has come about. Yes. And I think that, you know, I'm 43. I'm of a generation where we were told, oh, women can have it all. You can have the career and you can have the family and you can do whatever you want. And you must go to university and you've got to do all the things. And you get in there into these, for instance, corporate environments and you look around and you go, uh, I don't want to do any of these people's jobs. Like, no, thanks. <laughs> yeah, it's like, is this what all is like about? Because if it is, they can have it right back. Yeah. So what was interesting, though, is that even though you know that something isn't right and that like I was I was writing and and I was I was already having people say to me, hey, you know, I love what you're doing on your personal blog. And this was like summer of 2005. And and I was sharing sort of the epiphanies that I was having about my commitment issues and my low self-esteem. And people were saying, you're talking about me. We need to hear more of this. Please share more of your relationship advice. Please share more of your insights into life. That's how I started Baggage Reclaim in September 2005. But I was very good at my job. But I looked at everybody in the company. I didn't want anybody else's job. And that's yeah. always a sign, you know, that you, you, you're you not into, into yeah. it. I was very good at it. I enjoyed it, but I didn't want anybody's job. And what I did have the sense of was feeling like, I feel like I want to write and create more. But it was like, but that's not a, I'm of the generation where it's like, if it's not a job, where they tell you it's a job, then it's not a job. And if it's not a business that somebody else is doing, then it's not a business. And so when I said that I was leaving a pretty well-paid job, to go <laughs> and write my blog full time, they all looked at me as if I was smoking crack. <laughs> they were like, what? Yeah. Bear in mind, I must clarify, I only lasted four days. 
I went in on January the 4th and I was back out of there like four or five days later or something like that. Yeah, because fair enough. I'm surprised I, you lasted that many days. Yeah. But the thing is, is that I needed that experience to give myself the permission to be like, actually, you could have a go at this thing if it doesn't work out. But I didn't really think too deeply about that. I could go back and get another job as they kept telling me for the next 10 years. Oh, if your little blog thing doesn't work out, you know, you've always got a job here, you know. And like they literally said that like up until like, I don't know, four or five years ago or something like that. But it gave me the push because you're right. If I'd gone back and the job was there and everything was there, I'd have been there until something else yeah. had to come along and push me because I would have been like, well, I can't leave because look at the amount of money that they're paying me. Yeah, money is, it really just can stunt your your growth and kind of work as a, a detractor mm. from the thing that you maybe actually want to be doing. What really strikes me about about your career is that you really are a, a true organic influencer because you've been doing this for so long and you really were an early adopter to so many different things. I mean, you even had like a really awful incident with a troll that involved a court case that which was kind yeah. of unheard of at that point. You've used different mediums, different platforms. You've published six books independently, when indie publishing was still pretty new. Um, Now you have nearly 25,000 Instagram followers, um, and you were a very early adopter to social media, and you have a podcast. And I want to talk to you in more specific detail about your podcast in a sec. But what really strikes me is that you, that's a lot of (laughs) self-motivation. That's a lot of kind of watching trends, watching an evolution of, of a space, um, because being an influencer was not a thing when you and I kind of first started out. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think sets you apart? And what has really kind of allowed you to grow such a large and long lasting community online? Um, I think Part of what has driven me is, you know, I set out with a mission, which was if I could help at least one person avoid what I had been through, or I could help one person get out of a situation like what I had been through, then I would feel like I was giving back because I knew based on big transformations that went on in my life and actually the support that I had from community, like through my blog, sort of how beneficial it can be when you allow yourself to be seen and you allow yourself to be helped or to help others. Like, yeah. bearing in mind, I've helped a hell of a lot more than one to two people. Yes, <laughs> you know, just, a, just a few more. <laughs> and like baggage reclaim is what, like 15 and a bit years old. I, I've helped a hell of a lot more than, you know, like than a couple of people. But I didn't have this whole thing of it's got to look like this mm-hmm. or it's got to be this way or I've got to have like the book deal or I've got to be in the gang or what, you know, these things that are often metrics. But what has actually kept me going is that sense of mission and vision. I have tried to follow my own creativity, you know, sort of follow that sense of, oh, what, uh, Seth Godin puts it really well where he says, who are the people you're seeking to change and what is the change you're seeking to make? Mm-hmm. And that means that no matter what you do, whether it is through podcasting, speaking, writing, influencing as such, making, drawing, painting, dancing, whatever it might be, that if that's the core thread running through everything, then you're always doing what you set out to do. I've also found, I think, that 
I've really remained very, very focused on speaking on what I want to speak on. And I've been aware of things that are going on, you know, the different trends and how things are shifting. And I've been willing to adapt there. But what I've, I think has remained at the heart of it is it's that whole, what message do I have to share? How can I help somebody help themselves? And that's helped me to sort of stay in my own lane. That has not always been easy. You know, I've had some very dark periods in this where I I've sometimes felt like a lot to carry. Yeah. Sometimes like what I do. Yeah. And also because it's really easy to go, oh, I've, I've, I've had my calling. <laughs> this feels like the thing that I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. So that, that happens to you at 28. It was kind of foolish for me to think, oh, you just have your calling. And then that's just, you just do it again. Like you just keep doing your thing, like again and again and again. And you're never going to want to do anything different than that. And then when you like wake up at 40 and you go, uh, actually, what the hell am I doing with my life? And is this what I want to do? Like you suddenly go, oh my God, I thought a calling was just like, boom, there you go. It's all handed to you and you're set straight for the rest of your days. So that has been challenging, but it's always coming back to that base of my mission and being me. It's challenging at times, as I say, but it's also infinitely rewarding. Tell me about how those kind of challenging periods. So how do you protect your energy and your own mental health when so much of what you do is about sharing your own vulnerabilities and helping other people? But then Mm -hmm. also people must reach out to you all the time with what's going on for them. So how do you how do you protect yourself? How do you kind of protect your your energy and, and your mental health at the same time? Um, the first few years, I mistakenly believed that I should try to reply to every single email. Thankfully, this was really before social media kicked in big right. time. But I tried to, I remember sitting there sometimes for days at a time going through like emails and trying to reply to them. And what's amazing is you put yourself under this immense amount of pressure to do that. But when you realize that you actually don't get a massive amount of replies to that, but you've just like stressed yourself out to the gills trying to do this, you're like, okay, something's like a bit off there. So a few years in, I worked out, you're not going to be able to reply to all of these and you don't have to. No. (laughs) So that was a, a big shift for me. I'm a big believer that business work is a form of therapy. And what I mean by that is what you don't deal with in your for instance, romantic relationship or with your friendships or through family is actually going to show up at work. And so working for myself brought me really very sharply face to face with my people pleasing and my perfectionism. Mm. And it forced me to acknowledge one, I've been the worst boss I ever had in the sense (laughs) of how much I expected out of myself, the amount of pressure that I put on me. Mm You know, it's this sort of grandiose thing like, oh, I'm going to, just going to expect me to do the equivalent of three weeks worth of work in like a week. It's just insane. Yeah. And, and putting yourself under that pressure. But what I stopped doing was having this expectation that I can and should do all the things. And that evolved over time. But the really big hard stop on that one was when my father passed away in March 2017. Yeah. As a result, I ended up taking about seven, eight weeks off. Yeah. Because, of course, you you have to get to the funeral first and then you still need some time. And so I literally went from all the things that I've been doing down to like a, 
they're skeleton, like just doing the absolutely bare minimum. Hmm. And even though it was a very, very difficult, my emotions were all over the place. I sometimes, you know, spending a lot of time on my own. Weirdly, this calm sort of descended on me. But after about seven, eight weeks, I could hear myself going, oh, you need to get back to work. Mm. You need to get back to work. You've got to get back to it. That little demon inside. <laughs> yeah. You can't be having all this time off. So I went back to work and I didn't fit back into my old life case. No, I could not do all the things that I had previously done up until that point where he passed away. And I wrestled with this for the next couple of months and arrived at my 40th birthday and spent the two weeks before turning 40 having a complete meltdown. And then literally like two days before my 40th, this calm descends on me and I'm like, okay, I know what I need to do. And wow. Over the next few days, I let go of most of the freelance people who were doing stuff for me. Mm-hmm. I had moved into like a, a workspace around a corner from my, from my house. And I said, actually, I'm going to move back home. Okay. I went on my summer break, came back. And one day I turned to, to M, my husband, and I said, today is going to be the last day of the podcast. And that was like, I think, early October 2017. Okay. And... I basically slowed right down. I didn't have any concrete plan. In fact, I didn't allow myself to have a plan. And this got me to evaluate really what mattered. And I discovered that a lot of the things that I thought would cause the sky to fall down if I didn't do them, you know, sent an, I sent an email newsletter like every week for something like 13 years. Oh my God, <laughs> um, so many at, newsletters. <laughs> yeah, I think for like, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 years, I wrote maybe three, four blog posts a week. And so when somebody emailed me one day while I was on this break, maybe it was several months in and I'd sent out an email newsletter and she goes, I just wish you'd make up your mind and decide whether you are going to be sending like a weekly newsletter or not. And I was like, girl, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) That's what. That's the immediate feeling. I feel like that's, yeah, I was like, you said that, right? First of, <laughs> well, I was like, um, first of all, check yourself. I said, listen, I said, I totally get it. If you don't like being subscribed to somebody who's going through things, who takes time off, you know, who who basically sets her own pace. Yeah. Then you need to unsubscribe from that. And you don't even need to let me know that you're doing that. But just so we're all clear, I sent a weekly newsletter for over 13 years And I wrote several blog posts every week for well over a decade. And if I want to take some flipping time out, I bloody well will. Yeah. And it was a way of acknowledging to myself, I get to decide what my bandwidth is and what I want to do. Because I think that in the culture that we're in, especially online, and Kate, you know this, both you and I were running websites and managing communities and dealing with, you know, sometimes freelancers or brands or whatever Mm -hmm. that might be. And there's this culture of free and there's this culture of, oh, you must do like all the things. And if somebody says, well, you need to send a newsletter this amount of times and you have to have the Facebook and you have to do it, actually... I don't have to do anything. I don't have anything I don't want to do. I don't have to do it. I've discovered that this is no joke. My accountant called me December 2018. I was out in piss with my husband and uh, my sister. And he called me and without hearing what he had to say, because he said he wanted to talk to me about my figures. And I said, oh, look, you know that I have taken 
like a lot of time off, like even since before dad, you know, things have been a bit all over the place. I've taken a lot of time off. So that's why, you know, things are not as, as good as they have been previous years. And he went, uh, no, this is the most profitable you have wow. been. And, and that, you didn't know. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, I know. Lesson there, people, get on top of your money and stuff. But um, I discovered that the less I did and when I let go of trying to be in control of all the things and doing all the things and I don't know, there's so much bullshit online. Yes. Six figure business, seven figure business. You, you know, I woke up and I had a bowl of cornflakes, farted, sent an email <laughs> at 9 a.m. and made a million dollars. Like... <laughs> But it's just, why, thank you for coming to my TED talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, I just, I'm just done with trying to make myself be all the things. And as a result, I now, I send, uh, yes, I've now got back into a habit of sending emails, but I'm not doing it because somebody somewhere said, oh, Natalie, you must send an email. Yeah. I am not posting on social media in some set schedule. You know, yes, I care about the aesthetic of, of it a little bit because of my design background or whatever. But generally speaking, I'm just going to do whatever the frick I want to do. And it has been infinitely more joyful over that time. I do a hell of a lot less. I do not know how I did all of those those things before. No. But this allowed me to do things from a place of being me, not from this place of fear, of wanting to be liked, of wanting to control things. Or maybe if I do this, then this is going to happen. And maybe I'm just like, do you know what? I've got to breathe out because I always, I felt like I was white knuckling life, even though you didn't realize it at the time. Yes. I, I'm one of these people, like my husband, he's fair. He's a really, really good cook. I call him master chef, but he's also <laughs> quite confident. Like he can pull out a recipe book and he'll be like, oh, I'm going to do this recipe. And he won't follow it to like the letter and it will still be like an amazing meal. Wow. Me, I am like, right. So it says I've got to do this and I'm, you know, precise measurements. <laughs> Following all the those stuff. rules. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And even though I'm very much dance to the beat of my own drum and I do my own thing, I've never been, you know that, Kate, I don't follow the herd. One of the things I found that if there was this seemingly established norm for something, oh, well, they say you've got to do your newsletter this way or your social media or whatever it is, that something will creep in and I'll be like, oh, so that's the way that it's got to be done. And then what happens for me? Yeah, those, those are, the rules. are the rules. And I'm a good girl. Exactly. And then it's like, well, I either feel like I have to do it that way. And then I start to feel a weird or it now becomes this big built up thing for me where I'm like, oh, OK, well, now I've got to make sure it all looks good. And blah, 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 blah. I just can't do it anymore. And it has been so liberating to live my life this way. That reminds me. So I wanted to ask you specifically about your podcast you recently, and I believe this was in the caption for your 200th episode on your Instagram page, um, you said, this experience has taught me so much about commitment and releasing perfectionism. I didn't have a number of episodes in mind, and I definitely didn't think I'd make 200, even though I wasn't sure what I was doing or where it would lead. I did it anyway. Tell me about this relationship between your work and perfectionism and how Pray tell, how did you let go of that? Or how do you kind of quieten that enough to be able to create new things? Because there's so much of what you do that is external. You post, and by external, I mean vulnerable and kind of outwards. Mm -hmm. You post videos of you dancing, you doodle artwork, and everything is so um, creative and exposing in a, in a really wonderful way. Well, I call myself a recovering people pleaser and a recovering perfectionist. And 
I have come to realize that if I try to do something perfectly, it ain't gonna happen <laughs> or it's going to take a very, very long time to come to light. So like the podcast, M suggested doing a podcast like a year before it came out. I sort of went back and forth with myself and I was like, okay, yeah, I'm going to do a podcast. And then it was like, okay, well, now I have to investigate all the equipment and I've got to work. <laughs> and, and it took a year, a year, and I was melting down. As now I'm I'm dying because our producer Hannah is listening to this <laughs> and I met with her over a year ago and part of it wasn't my fault. Part of it was the delay in my book being published. Part of it was I was just like overly prepared. Part of it was coronavirus. A huge part of it was my own perfectionism. So yeah. I identify with this very strongly. <laughs> oh, it was it was un and as a number of things that it's like I get into my head about it and I'm like, oh, I imagine that it's this really, really complicated thing. And you notice this in other areas of life where you procrastinate about doing something. Oh, yeah. And then you are mortified beyond measure when you go to do it. And it takes like two minutes or three <laughs> minutes or five, or some ridiculously yeah. short period of time. And when you add up the amount of time that you spent avoiding it and imagining it, that, that it was like way more complicated, you're horrified. Absolutely. Like at the, the crazy levels that you went to. Um, the first several years of my work, if I wanted to do something, I would just go and do it. What I noticed then over the last several years, it was almost like, as I guess I, I grew more followers, but also the, the online landscape changed in terms of business. Everything started to feel a little bit more like, oh, I have to be like a bit more considered about this thing that I'm doing. And so I would find that it all this stuff would be in my head, but not necessarily making it out. Yes. And it was driving me crazy. And I'd think about like posting on Instagram, but it's like, oh, but like, how do I do that? And and, and will that look right on squares? And I know that they say, and I was boring the tits out of myself, excuse my language, but I was like, I, I've, I've had in, it's very, very, very stressful to be a perfectionist because mm -hmm. listen, perfectionism works really well when you have, these really great standards that help you to deliver like really great work. Perfectionism, however, when it's really about how can I try to control the uncontrollable? Yes. How can I try to prove to people that I am worthy? How can I make sure that I have like a tight rein on everything so that I don't expose myself to rejection or to disappointment or whatever it is? Like, how can I control my anxiety? That's where you run into a whole load of problems, especially yeah. when you start saddling yourself up with all of this stuff. And so what I've tried to do over the last few years is to give myself the grace to just crack on and get on with it. The podcast was not going to happen if I had to have perfect episodes, if I had to have every um and ah and you know you know, deleted out of it. It wasn't going to happen if I was like, well, I'm going to do this podcast, but I then have to be featured in like some magazine or yes. newspaper about that or yeah. whatever. So it took 80 episodes. And I must point out, I've enjoyed every single episode that I've made, but it took making 80 episodes to go, oh, do you know what? I don't want to do a podcast that has five different segments to it. That's what I, 80 episodes, five different segments. Every Lord. week, I know. <laughs> well, because I'd I'd seen some of the podcasts. Well, that was, was the like, right okay, way to do it. This this is the way to do it. But 
I needed to make the first 80 to then get a sense of, oh, this is how I want to do it. And you know how that happened? Dad died. I came back on a podcast to say, hey, I'm going to be taking some time off and talk about what had been going on. And I was like, oh, this is interesting because I'm just talking about one thing. And I did that a few more times over the subsequent episodes. And I was like, yeah, I do not want to do these five different segments. But that 80 is just a metaphor for everything else, which is you have to throw yourself in there and have a go. Sometimes to discover that you don't want to do it. Sometimes to discover what your voice is. And if you have this attachment to, well, it's got to be perfect or it can't be done at all. First of all, you'll never put it out because you know when I know that there's always more things that can be done, always more changes that can be made. So I've just had to let it get out there. Something also that changed my life was overhearing a conversation on Amy Porterfield's podcast. She was talking to a woman called, I think it's Brooke Castillo. Okay. And she said that she now focuses on doing B minus work. (laughs) (laughs) A rating that no one has ever before, I think, shot for. (laughs) And the funny thing is, you hear that and there's a part of you that you literally feel yourself go, wait, what? Like, who? Like, what? But the thing is, is that... I think I'd rather be a C plus than a B minus. (laughs) (laughs) But she was saying that uh, with perfectionists is that you end up shaming yourself because Mm -hmm. you're so, like, caught up in stuff that maybe you don't put stuff out. You, as soon as if it gets too much, you're like, okay, I'm just going to leave that alone. So you don't get as much out there as you want to. Or you feel ashamed about stuff that's out there. But she said that she put a book out there that had typos and whatever else. And she felt this great deal of shame about it. And then a woman wrote to her, like, I don't know, like a a really, really lengthy letter saying, your book changed my life. Wow. Like, you saved my life. And I'm a different person today because of this book. And she's like, oh, my God, like my shitty book, my B minus book changed somebody's life. And I was like, oh, this now makes a lot of sense to me because if I had my way, I would go back over every single thing that I've created and try to find a way to make it a bit better, to make it more perfect or whatever. Mm. And a lot of my time has been spent doing that and it's exhausting and, and all the rest. So I just had to let go. I always say when I notice that I'm people pleasing or I'm trying to perfect something, it's my way of saying I am anxious. Yeah. And that has been a revelation for me yes. because then now I go, oh, I've just noticed that I'm doing that perfectionist thing. Yeah. Okay. What am I anxious about? And then I get to have a more honest conversation with me because then I can go, I either want to do this or I don't want to do this. And if I am going to do it, then let's be honest about my reasons why I'm doing it. And if I'm anxious about something, well, now I can acknowledge what that is and I can decide how I want to proceed. Yes, because anxiety anxiety is a is a signal. And I don't mean having a, a serious anxiety disorder. Those are that's a different thing to what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. Um, but with anxiety, just as you were saying, and I write about this in, in my book, I, I can realize my own behavior at work when I start thinking that all of my colleagues hate me and I start mm-hmm. reading every single Slack message and every email um, through it like a filter of they think I'm too difficult and that I'm a bitch and no one wants to work yeah. with me and so they're going to fire me. I now go, oh, <laughs> I'm feeling anxious. Yes. What is going on? And it's a really Amen. important signal. Yes. 
it's life changing when you realize this, because otherwise you're going to hate yourself. or You're going to hate everybody else around you and you will avoid things and you won't create things and you'll hide things. Honestly, if somebody said to me, Natalie, we're creating a digital version of the show Hoarders, I would have enough to fill probably two homes full of stuff that I've created that has not seen the light of day. <laughs> you're just your drafts. <laughs> yeah. My, my, my shitty 100th draft, you know, type of thing. Because that's what, it, you know, that's what yes. it's like with perfectionism. No, absolutely. Um, you have two young daughters. I say young. In my mind, they're like <laughs> three and five. <laughs> they're not. How old know, are you? You've known them since they I were know. like tiny. How old are they now? They are 13 and 11 going on 45. My God. <laughs> I feel like your youngest was always around 45 yeah, uh, emotionally. Yeah. She has um, not changed. <laughs> um, what is your sort of approach with all of this kind of knowledge and, and learned experience that you have around self-esteem and self-worth? What has that sort of process been like for you? Do you, do you have to stop yourself from being like, and now I'm going to tell you about things. <laughs> or is it just, have you found it to be really organic and natural? Because personally me, I would freak the fuck out <laughs> knowing that I, that's what I do and I have all of this stuff. And I'm like, how do I cram yeah. all that stuff for me into them so into that they them, know? Yeah. yeah. I think that, you know, when I found out that I was having a girl the first time around, I remember feeling scared because of my own upbringing and being like, oh, gosh, like, what if we have the same mother daughter relationship that I had with mine? Mm -hmm. And because I, I am compassionate and tolerant and patient and empathetic with them, it's helped me to really notice where I am not that way with myself. Mm -hmm. I have also for years now, like from when they were quite small, we've really encouraged an, an ongoing dialogue, which is so different to my own upbringing. Mm -hmm. You know, if I said something about, I don't know, somebody going out with somebody or somebody being, well, what are you talking about that for? Were you trying to get with a boy? But like <laughs> our parents were just so, it was a totally different time. Yes. I remember teaching um, like about a hundred kids last year workshops on on journaling and identifying their feelings. Mm -hmm. And I said, I help grown-ups to figure out what they're feeling and why, so they can figure out what they need and what they want. And these kids were looking at me and you're talking about kids from like age three up to like, you know, 11. And I'm like, why would you have to do that? And I said, do you know why? Because when we were your age, nobody ever talked to us about feelings <laughs> and needs and wants. It was like, what are you talking about feelings for? T stop talking rubbish and get outside and go and play. What are you crying for? So, I'll give you something yeah, to cry about. Yeah. Oh my, yeah, standard line. Oh yeah, you want to cry? Okay, let's, you're going to have a cry now. So with mine, there's part of me that's like, when my daughter, my eldest started secondary school, I went through a period of, of anxiety. Oh my God, mm. you start to imagine. And then she's going to be invited to a party and somebody's going to spike her drink. Maybe somebody's <laughs> going to offer her a Coke. Somebody's got, this is yeah. just from starting secondary school, like age 11. Um, somebody's <laughs> going to try it on with her. What if somebody tries to like, uh, like yeah. I yeah. hear so much that it's you, my mind can get very busy. Mm. But what I try to do is have an ongoing dialogue and it's not always easy like our youngest I think I've mentioned to you before has really struggled with anxiety really triggered by coronavirus yeah. there was a bit of it there before but this is really it's, it's been a very very tricky year for her emotionally yes. and obviously trying to support her so what I it's the, the the dialogue thing is really important to me because if you talk to your kids about anything and everything so you talk about the small stuff they will come to you 
about the bigger stuff. If they know that they can ask you whatever questions they want to ask you, and even if you're a bit like, oh my gosh, like I'm dying of mortification that they ask me this, that you will still talk to them. There is this sense of this trust that you're not trying to be like best buddies or whatever with them. You're trying to say, hey, like I'm, I'm here for you. I, I, I see you. I want to know what's going on in your world. And it helps you to notice the patterns that are going on in their life as well. Because when my eldest would come home and she would be like, oh, I played on my own today. This is when she was younger. I played on my own today. Or she'd hung out with some completely random person who I'd never heard of before. If that happened a few times, I would know that she was going through emotional turmoil because she was maybe struggling to hang out with her usual group of friends. Mm. Understanding all of this from having all those other little light conversations that we'd had would then help me to understand what they need. As they get older, you know, my, my eldest loves coming home and telling me the stories from school. And sometimes I am sitting there listening and inside I am going, oh, my God, I'm dying. Like, I can't <laughs> believe that she is like telling me like this, the, the, this like, stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sometimes okay. like I'm a deer, like in the headlights <laughs> of the stuff that, she, that she's telling me. And, you know, I'm sure people think I'm pretty unflappable. But, oh, my gosh, like life for Teenage a girls. teenager oh my gosh, it's so different to how it was like when a lot of it's the same and a lot of it isn't. It's 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 weird. But my kids are, are, are funny, like where they overhear me having a conversation with a friend about her dodgy boyfriend who she's just had to break it off with. And my 13 year old walks in and she's like, yeah, mom, I think she's going out with a yandere, which apparently is a Japanese word for like a stalker type guy who gets really, really intense and wants to kill everybody in her presence type of thing. Oh, yeah. But some, my kids, I think, have aspirations at some point later in life to be running baggage reclaim or something. They're very, very astute. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Little nudders. Oh, I love that. Um, usually I wrap things up by asking you know, Natalie Lou, what do you think is at the heart of what it is that you do? <laughs> but firstly, we've already kind of touched on that because you have this very clear, authentic kind of core mission, I think is is how you maybe put it on your website about helping people. But I think just hearing you talk about perfectionism and, and about your girls, I would, because I love to psychoanalyze people, um, <laughs> I feel like also... It's a really kind of beautiful mechanism to keep yourself in check and to keep yourself accountable and to keep that good girl, perfectionist, people pleaser kind of at bay or at least kind of contained and and monitored at all times. Like that is probably one of the most honest and real things that anybody has ever said to me, Kate, because that is the absolute truth of it. You have literally got to the heart of it because one of the things I've realized is you can sit around and you can shame you for having your background, for your experiences, you know, at times. And, you know, I've been very candid with you about this, where I have given myself a hard time for, I don't know, not being given certain opportunities sometimes feeling like you're you're left out of it passed yeah. over sometimes you know when you're when you hit 40 as a society but also online it's like you're kind of excluded out of the narrative and stuff yeah and if somebody had said to me oh you will be doing what you're doing for 16 years and you will basically yes you'll have community and you'll have people in your camp who kind of look out for you support you but you will basically have had to write your own books like you will have had to publish yourself in order to publish you will have to have created your own opportunities 
I'd have been like, oh, I, I wonder, I, I might have been like, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. But I've realized that when I speak on the things that I think make me weird, <laughs> that other people get to see themselves. And I realized that I really am not fucking weird at all. No. Um, and by being very honest about who I am in the sense of a lot of people will say to me, I feel as if I know you. And of course, I'm probably only really sharing what five 10% yep. max of, mm -hmm. of my life. And I don't share in the war. I'm very boundaried about that. But living my life out loud and sharing my experiences and also sharing my observations of others and, and relationships and life in general has helped me to be that recovering people pleaser, to be that recovering perfectionist. Because if, if I allowed my inner perfectionist and people pleaser to run rampant, my life would be total shit show mine too <laughs> it, it really, and I also wouldn't I wouldn't get stuff done and I've realized just like put it out there just do it it doesn't have to be perfect I'm not saying it has to be totally like you can just put out anything and everything but I I've realized like just like get on with it like stop waiting for the perfect moment or for the person to notice you for somebody to come along and say hey Natalie here's your like six-figure book deal <laughs> and here's the, 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 the. it's like no yeah. like Natalie Like, stop trying to have some, like, sort of fairy tale life. Just flipping crack on. Yes. Oh, Natalie, thank you so, so much for coming on The Heart of It. Um, I've loved speaking with you. Um, and where, where can people find you? Where do you live online? Well, I still have, I call it a website these days, but originally I used to call it a blog, and that's Baggage Reclaim. So baggagereclaim.com or .co.uk. In terms of social media, really the only place that I hang out is on Instagram, which is at Natlu, that's N-A-T-L-U-E. And on the website, you can find like my blog, I think it's got like 1600 blog posts or something like that. You've got Damn. the podcast there. It's got like, my books, my e-courses, everything is on there, you know, my, my body of work. Even if I don't publish another thing or do anything else, I've got plenty out there. <laughs> There's plenty. There's plenty where they can, they can find you, they can listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wonderful. Thank you so, so much. Well, Kate, do you know what? It has been an absolute pleasure. I've talked about things today that I can't remember talking about for ages, like, so it's been great. I've known Natalie for a long time, but this is the first time I've ever interviewed her. And I loved finding out more about her life before Baggage Reclaim and how she's built up such an incredible community, despite the fickleness and the chaos of social media. Natalie's views on perfectionism and how she learned to, as they say, feel the fear and do it anyway, really made me think about all of the things I've put off and denied myself creatively because I was too afraid of not being perfect, this podcast included. Is this something you've struggled with too? I'd love to hear any thoughts and stories about overcoming perfectionism that you have. Give us a shout at Heart of It Podcast on Instagram. Thank you again for listening to today's episode. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you may get your podcasts from. And you can follow us on social media at Heart of It Podcast. <laughs>